Well, hey, again, if you've not been with us yet, hopefully that 30 seconds is enough to cover all my sermons. So uh, hopefully, but if not, seriously, you can go back online and watch them. Uh, it's a powerful series that we're a part of. I'm, I'm glad you're here. It's interesting because uh, in our family, there's a lot of things that tend to go across our TV screens, whether it's YouTube or Netflix or Hulu or whatever your favorite streaming service is. But sometimes you stumble across like a, a documentary or a series that you know means way more than just what you're watching. And, and as our country kind of navigated and, and is still really going through the, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, there was a documentary series that Lindsay and I stumbled across, maybe some of you watched this by National Geographic, outlining stories, not just the events, but actual stories of people who survived those awful acts and those awful moments in our, in our nation's history, very recent history. And there's one specific story that stuck out to me. There was a, a specific story we were watching. I literally stopped and said, that's a powerful story. Maybe some of you have seen this. The story is, is the guy named Frank Rosano. Now, Frank was a lawyer in, in the New York City area and had a big case, what he described in this, in this series as his biggest case of, the biggest case of his life. So he's in the Marriott Hotel, he's got a suite, he's got all his stuff kind of strewn out, and he's there in, in the morning of September 11th. And he hears the, this huge crash, which we now know was the first plane crashing into the first tower. And he's like, well, I don't know what that was. Was that an earthquake? Was that a, like, I'm not sure what's going on. And so then he feels the Marriott start to begin to shift under the weight of the second crash. So fast forward, he's, he's there, and like any of us, uh, feelings of fear, feelings of terror, feelings of anxiety and worry about what's going to happen, uh, feelings of, am I going to make it out of this alive? Frank's there, and he begins gathering his things, which now in hindsight to us would look pretty foolish, but he didn't know what was going on. So he gathers his things, and he starts running down the stairwell. And he's towards the top of the Marriott, which is already a big hotel. He's, he's making it down all the flights of stairs, and he's starting to, the, the smoke is starting to fill the Marriott. The, the, tower, the building continues to shake and, and rumble back and forth. And, and the, the thoughts go through Frank's mind, again, like our thoughts would be, am I going to make it out of this alive? Am I ever going to see my wife again? Am I ever going to see my daughter again? Am I ever going to meet my, my newborn child who's on the way? Things that are hard, even for me now as a dad, to process, but much less as a person in that situation. So he gets down to the third floor. And at the third floor, there is this huge crash, fireballs literally from the World Trade Centers coming through the top of the Marriott Hotel. The Marriott Hotel itself is starting to catch fire and, and fuselage is dropping through the stairwells. He finds himself trapped on the third floor landing of the Marriott, three floors away from freedom, from safety. And he's standing there, he's all alone. He can't hear anyone, it's dark, it's hot. His lungs are full of smoke at this point. And he kind of resigns himself to the fact that I'm going to die right here on this third floor landing. This is it. Until he hears a voice. And the voice is firefighter Jeff Johnson. Jeff Johnson decided, kind of as, as a lot of people were fleeing when the, the tower started to crumble down, he said, you know what, I'm going to go back in. I'm going to go into the Marriott. So, so Jeff gets his gear on and heads into the Marriott Hotel, trying to find anyone who may have survived what's happening right before everyone's eyes. And Jeff doesn't hear anybody. He's going through as many floors as he can navigate, as floors collapse and, and crush in around people. And then he hears Frank. 
And Frank calls out saying, is anyone there? Is anyone there? I need help. I'm stuck. And Jeff says, I'm here, I'm here. And it sounds so faint. Frank describes, I can barely hear it because all the noise and debris and, and things crashing around him. And as he's looking through kind of these crisscross steel beams in front of Frank's face, he sees Jeff. He sees Jeff. And he's far away at this point because the building is nowhere near what it looked like. It was not easy to navigate, but he knows that, that Jeff's there. He knows that a voice is out there. And so eventually Jeff literally says, okay, I'm going to have to pull you through this narrow hole, this, this kind of two foot wide tube, basically. I'm going to get you through this. And Frank is a larger man. He's like, that's not happening. But, but for Jeff says, no, 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 we'll get you out. I'm going to get you out and make sure you get free. And so Jeff literally pulls Frank's body through this hole and eventually Frank gets to safety, he gets to a medic and gets patched up and all these things. And Frank is alive to this day and met his family and all these things. What's powerful is Frank's reflection on this story. And this is what made me literally pause the documentary uh, last week and just say, that's powerful. Frank is reflecting on the story and he says, you know what's interesting about the whole event? is that if I was left to my own devices, left to my own thinking, I would have died on the third floor landing. I didn't see a way out. I didn't see a, a path to freedom. I mean, there's literally crumbling fuselage and, and the Marriott is in pieces in front of me. And the, the, the floors below had collapsed. I'm just kind of on this landing suspended in the middle of this, this debris pile. And he says, if, if Jeff, if Frank wasn't, I'm sorry, if Jeff wasn't there, I would have never got free. If Jeff hadn't led me out, I would have died right there on that third floor landing. What we're talking about today is the fact that God wants to free other people through us. Other people, they're, they're literally people. And the question I wanna to ask today is who does God wanna free through us? Because let me just be super clear. As we're going through this vision series and talking about how zero does change everything, we're talking today about how zero needs among us is a dream and something we're pursuing. I've just heard too many, and I mean too many with like bold, underlying, italicized, like too many stories of marriages, of minds, of students and children in our community who are still enslaved, who are not free, who are not experiencing the life and the freedom and the joy that comes from following Jesus with your whole self and being introduced to a God who can break you free of addictions and habits and patterns that are destructive and eroding your soul. And I just want to say, let's ask the question together today, who does God want to free through us? And I want to take you to Acts 16. Acts 16, if you have a Bible, this is a perfect time to pull it out because what I want to do is go through the story and I want to look at, we've looked at kind of different moments and characters in Acts 16. We looked at Lydia and how God used her, her work as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about a jailer who found himself in a pretty precarious position, about to die, and then gets set free, gets this whole new life in Christ. But I want to take you to before, after Lydia's moment and before the jailer's moment, there's this small story. It's almost easy to miss if you're in Acts 16, uh, right before Paul and Silas get into prison. And here's what happens. They leave Lydia's house, baptism service, incredible moment. Lydia is set out and then later we know plants a church. And this is what happens after they leave her house. It said, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave 
who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are, men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved or be set free. She kept this up for many days. Now, I don't know about you. If someone follows me around yelling, good thing or not, that's really annoying. <laughs> I would not like that. And I would probably have a similar reaction to what happens here. She kept this up for many days. And this is the most holy verse in all of the scriptures. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her, free her. At that moment, the spirit left her. In verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face authorities, to face the authorities. We're talking about zero needs among us. And in this story, we find a slave girl who has multiple needs. And like you and I, if you were enslaved, if you had never seen a way out, if you only knew what slavery looks like, it almost begins to feel eerily normal. What's interesting too is in Philippi, child slavery had become normal, practicable, and even considered a decent revenue stream. Think about this. And this is the plight of, of modern day human trafficking to this day, but this is that happening in Philippi. This is a group of men who had oppressed and, and abused and, and held captive this young girl who was not yet free. And what's interesting to me is I read a story like this. If you translate this, like 21st century America, if this was happening in Byron Center, Michigan, here's what I would probably say, because I'm not as holy as you maybe think I am. I would say, why don't you just get free? Just get out of the situation. Can't you leave? Can't you break out? Can't you do something? This is kind of the modern day take on this, right? You can set yourself free at any moment. That's, that's how our, our world tends to view slavery or addictions to things. And I'm not talking about physical slavery as much as I am spiritual, emotional, and mental. And here, like, it begs the question, can't you just free yourself? Like if you're looking at this girl, picture if you're in Philippi, right? The chances of this being the first time the, the Philippian people had ever seen this girl are basically zero. Because picture, if someone had followed around a group of your friends all summer long and yelled at them, your whole town would know, right? Byron's not that big, okay? If that was happening to me and we're walking down Main Street, you would easily know that there's something going on. There's something weird. Something is happening. And this is true in this. But here's what I think is powerful about what happened. So Paul and Silas free her. They set free. The spirit literally comes out of her. And this to me, if you look at this story of scripture as a whole, if you look to the Bible from the very first pages to, to Revelation, the point being is that freedom is an outside job. Freedom is an outside job. That's why you can't, if you're honest with yourself, set yourself free at any moment. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know how I begin doing that. Like I'm not strong enough to figure that out on my own. I'm not, I'm not capable enough. Freedom friends, is an outside job. But I want to highlight two tensions in this story. Maybe you saw them, maybe you didn't. The first one is that, well, I don't know if I like this because I, I, I can tend to get, I don't know, sometimes I have a temper and it's not always super pretty. And I, that never comes out at church and poor Lindsay, I'm sorry. But that, that sometimes comes out. That's like something I think I inherited genetically. So I feel Paul in this moment. See, Paul was annoyed. Paul was really annoyed. And so it wasn't like compassion 
that moved Paul to, to heal and free this girl? It was annoyance, which I just think is an interesting tension. I don't know if there's a lesson there or principle there, but sometimes when it comes to seeing zero needs among us, when you think about the needs in your family or your community, even like the world that we're in, sometimes God wants to move through your anger more than he wants to move through your compassion. Sometimes God uses the things that you just say, I can't stand this anymore. I can't tolerate it anymore. I can't deal with it anymore. Like some of like our AC went out a couple, like a month ago. And there was a point where we said, you know, we could drop a couple thousand and get this fixed or we could deal with it. And I was about one day away from saying that exact statement. I can't handle it anymore. Like I'm sweaty going to bed. I'm sweaty waking up. I don't want to do it anymore. And that's kind of Paul's disposition. He is annoyed. And so he frees the girl out of anger. Friends, there's probably stuff in your business, in your community, maybe even in your neighborhood that you should not be willing to tolerate. Behavior, addictions, broken families, I mean, that's, that's kind of how hand-to-hand got started. You hear the story of that, that journey. It was like, man, we should be mad about the fact that there's kids going to, to home hungry because there's not enough food. And we live in one of the wealthiest suburbs in Grand Rapids. That shouldn't be. And so it actually was born out of anger, which I think is powerful. And if you look at your own life, there's probably areas where you get mad and angry about stuff. That may be an area God wants to free people. That may be an area God wants to use you in your ordinary life to set someone free, which I think is why verse 16 is really interesting to me. Because right at the beginning, it starts out as like, man, isn't it great that Paul and Silas freed this young girl? They, they free her from this demonic spirit. That's at work. They free her from her captors, even though they get really angry because they were making money off her slavery, off her bondage. And I asked the question, well, if you're in Philippi, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't like this girl being free be a positive? But that's not the case. What happens to Paul and Silas after she gets free is they throw her into prison. And that's how, throw him into prison, sorry. That's how the story resolves. And if you think about it, why did Paul and Silas get thrown into prison? Have you ever asked that question in the story? Maybe you've never read the story before. I'm curious, why? why they got thrown into prison. You dig into it, just look at the, the context they're in. They got set, thrown into prison for setting someone who was not like them free. That's a word for some of us. They got thrown into prison because they were setting people free who other people said, she doesn't deserve to be free. We're making money off that. This system, we're making money off this. Why would you set her free. They don't look like you. Why are you setting them free? They don't, those kids don't care that they're hungry. Why do you care? But why are you setting them free? And, and Paul and Silas recognized that, that the very heart of God is setting people free. Like if freedom is an outside job, that meant Paul and Silas weren't going around having to micromanage and do it on the, their own. It actually means that they were just conduits of that freedom. And when we talk about zero needs among us, that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about the fact that God has placed you and I and given us resource, time, energy, some talent, some capabilities to set people free even after we experience that same freedom. You know what Acts 16 is like one of the most humorous chapters in the Bible? Well, I'll put it this way. So these Pharisees, these spiritually elite, these religious leaders, 
would walk around and literally pray things like this on the way to the synagogue. I hope you never pray this on the way to center church, by the way. They would literally pray this. They would say, God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile, which was kind of the, their term for outsider, someone who's non-Jewish. Guess who encounters the, the freeing, life-changing power of Jesus in Acts 16? Anyone remember? A woman named Lydia, a jailer who was a Gentile, who was a Roman, and a slave girl. See, God doesn't care what someone is like, their background, whether or not you think in your mind or I think in my mind they're deserving of freedom. He just says, freedom's an outside job, and I want to bring it to everybody you know, everybody you've encountered. There's never a person you've met on Facebook or at Family Fair who does not deserve the freeing, life-changing power of Jesus. This is what inspires me about the early church, by the way. Early on in the church, like there's explosive growth. First couple hundred years of the church, the most adverse conditions for church. Like we're in Byron Center. This is the easiest place to do church in the world because there's no physical limitations. There's no government limitations, which is its own danger, by the way. But we'll talk about that later. But in, in the modern, in the early church, rather, the Romans literally had persecution campaigns. There was people paid, like Saul slash Paul was, to chase and hunt down Christian families and to wipe them out. They wanted to make sure this movement didn't spread. But guess who, in the first couple hundred years of the church, guess who was on the garbage dumps, the, the hundred street landfill, if you will, in ancient Rome, in these different cities, finding babies who Roman officials and families had discarded, said, we don't actually want four kids, we want three. So we're going to put that baby out into the, into the dump. It's their version of infanticide or like abortion. They throw them out. Guess who was there crawling through trash and picking up these babies and raising them? Christians. Guess who, when poor people in, in ancient Rome which funerals were an even bigger value culturally. It said something about the person, how they were handled, and how the funeral was, was conducted, and whether or not they had a nice casket, even more so than that speaks in our culture. Like they didn't cremate people. It was an actual physical body. And so guess who? When poor people died and had no family resource, no wealth, no savings accounts, no, no pensions to take care of their needs, no life insurance bills, nothing. Guess who put on funerals for poor families? It was Christians. Guess who, when there was massive plagues that swept throughout ancient Rome, multiple centuries over centuries, guess who was, was running back into the cities, back into the populated areas, caring for sick, often dying themselves as they cared for these people? It was Christians. I mean, secular researchers and historians have said this. this. That's not even from like a Christian history book. That's like from people who don't believe in Jesus who said, yeah, it was them, hospitals, charities, and all these institutions that, that we're now enjoying were started by people who had been set free and decided to use that freedom to free other people, to make sure there were zero needs among them. Now let's pivot and talk about how, how does this play out in our culture because I haven't seen any of you at the Hunter Street landfill looking for babies, I, thank God. But, but there are situations in our culture that are very similar. 
I don't, I don't know if we necessarily have put together a funeral for a poor person, but they're very similar contexts in which we can bless people. What about these needs? Like if you look at really need in the scriptures and even in our world today, can be broken up into three categories. And if you're a note taker, this may be helpful to look through this lens as you're looking at Acts 16. The, the three categories are physical, which are obvious that you can see them. Someone doesn't have clothes. Someone doesn't have food. Someone doesn't have a place to sleep or, or a dry place to, to live. Physical. They're emotional. So they're mental. They, they have kind of mental health components to them. They could be relational, but they're ment- uh, emotional. And the third is spiritual. They, they have a need for, for freedom or a need for God or, or space in their life in which God could change and transform and reorient them. And so when we talk about zero needs right here, like let's get really granular. For me, I saw this play out and I was just looking over the last 12 months. I was trying to say, God, how have you used us in some of these ways? What are some stories we could share? One of the the ways when it comes to physical need is there is a need in our community because of the stigma and just the fear surrounding uh, to support teen moms, to support single moms who are trying to figure out life. If you're in the school system, this is not a surprise to you, but, but this is almost like a, a growing issue even right here in our south, in kind of southwest Michigan, and I wasn't really aware of that uh, until I met with some people in our community, and they shared some of these statistics and some of the stories. Um, so I said, man, if God, if you ever let us kind of intersect with families like that, we would like that would be a, a gift to us, and we'd be honored to do that. Literally, I think I, I talked to some of those people, met some of those people, got that on my radar. It was like a week later. This is last summer, kind of the middle where COVID is so weird and we're all kind of at home, kind of not, like just figuring life out. And, and church even was not an ideal situation. We're literally worshiping in a parking lot, trying to figure out how do we rebuild some of this stuff. We're in that parking lot. And so I get a call from Michael, who's the director of Byron Community Ministries, just literally across the parking lot from us. And he said, hey, I know that you guys have kind of had a heart for this. I know that we've had conversations about this. I want you to know a young girl, a teenage girl, walked into my office with a toddler and a baby on the way. And she said, I, I don't, didn't really have a place to live, but I finally got a place to live. I've got a room in this place, but I have no furniture. I have a room. Someone's letting me stay in their house, but I have no bed. I'm about to have a baby. I already have a toddler. And Michael just said, I wonder, would you guys be willing to buy her a bed? Like just write a check and buy a bed? I said, let me think about it for 0.2 seconds. (laughs) I was like, yes, we can do that. Yes, because God had been stirring even in our church just to grow in generosity. It was like an easy yes. I was like, of course. And so I said, here, here's a check for $1,000 or whatever. Go buy her a brand new bed, brand new mattress. Like she needs a place to sleep. We can't retrofit her entire house for her, but, but what we can do is this simple Asked, that's what it means to meet a physical need. Sometimes it's that simple. Pretty much all of us at some point in our lives have had access to, to extra money or extra resource. That's kind of what happens. When you talk about zero needs among us, that was what was taking place in the early church. Not that it was like this communist regime that somehow was Christian, but it was like this sense of, you have a need, I can help you meet that need. And I want to help you set, get you set up so you don't have that same need over and over and over and over again. It's almost a hand up instead of a hand out mentality. That's what it means to meet physical needs right here. How about emotional? Do I have to tell any of us that even in a place like Byron Center with nice grass and nice roads that, that people are struggling mentally? 
that through the last 18 months, the, the rates of suicide, anxiety, and depression almost across all demographics have, have risen, have gone up? Like, is that, a, I don't know if that's a shock, hopefully, to anybody. How about the, the amount of marriages that crumbled under the weight of some of those things last year? I mean, there's people, I, I mourn stories that I was a part of, getting to walk with people, they're not married anymore. Because there were things going on mentally, there was emotional needs that just that, that got warped and distorted, and they began meeting them in so many different ways outside of the freeing power of Jesus. Their, their lives fell apart, and we mourn that. There's emotional, and the third is spiritual. Again, we're in Byron Center. You're like, man, how's there a spiritual need? There's a church. There's more churches than houses in Byron Center. Like, how do you figure? How do you figure there's a spiritual need? I mean, let's just be super honest. Just because there's a bunch of churches doesn't mean people know Jesus, which is sad and it's wrong, but it's true. I mean, I, I grew up in church world. I grew up in great churches, even in our area. I didn't really have a life-changing power with, with G, encounter with Jesus till eight or nine years ago. T to me, there is a spirit of religion and legalism that we need to be set free from. Even in our community, there's people walking around thinking that they have it when they don't. And, and that's why the story of the, the slave girl is so powerful. Because you see all of these dimensions, all these things working and interacting together. Did the slave girl have a physical need? Yes, she was literally enslaved by, by captors who tormented and abused and were, were a, a, assaulting her on a, a probably weekly basis. She needed physical freedom from the situation. Did this girl who's in this scenario have emotional needs? Yes. I mean, anyone you've walked through abuse or this kind of situation coming out of the trauma and the healing that would need to take place. There was certainly emotional need. Did she have a spiritual need? This should be the most obvious yes, right? Because it literally, the scriptures points out, she was tormented by a spirit. There was demonic forces somehow oppressing or, or, or kind of assaulting her and as she's in this captivity. Yes, yes, yes. Which is why Acts 16, friends, is a model for us uh, of how to go about meeting needs in our community. Meeting the, the physical, but you, if you just meet the physical and not the emotional or the, or the spiritual, you're missing it. If you just meet the emotional, not the other two, you're missing it. If you just meet spiritual, but neglect the person's body, neglect their mind, you're, you're missing it. And that's why, the, for me, that was like, oh man. So now we have all three of these categories and you're asking John Gorette every single day to go out and figure out how to meet the need when it's right in front of me. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what scripture says. Freedom is an outside job. It's something that God does through you. He uses His Holy Spirit through you. When we are literally bringing food bags into Oriole Park Elementary School and we're praying over them, we're putting them in lockers, that we play such a tiny part in what really matters when it comes to serving people. God does the real work. God gave us the resource, the gas in the car, the hands to put the bags in lockers, the food provided, the generosity of our church. I mean, all of those things are outside. It takes so much pressure off when you realize zero needs among us does not rise and fall just on you or just on me. Freedom itself, the ability to meet needs in the long term is an outside job. I want to talk about how in the, in the next little bit, the next few minutes, just how we're planning and, and how God is stirring us to do this for the future. Because you may ask, okay, yeah, we've been around almost 15 years, but what are we doing now? Like, what is the, what is the activity? What are we pressing towards for the future? 
a couple years ago, we took kind of an exploratory trip, some of you are on that, to Petty Guav, Haiti. And there's a much younger, fresh-looking version of our worship leader, Peter Jones, right there, which I didn't even <laughs> notice that. Wow, you, you look better now. Um, I, I somehow got worse. I'm not sure. I look older now. But the, uh, we had some of our team along with Frontline Church go and just explore that as a way to say, what are some physical needs that we can be a part of meeting? But knowing that when you go cross-culturally, there is a way that you get reoriented even your own physical needs. And there's a way that God serves in you way more than you contribute to the trip or contribute to that experience. Haiti, and recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to meet an incredible faith leader down from who lives in Guatemala, but, but goes back and forth between Hudsonville and Guatemala, which has to be the most weird culture shock on a monthly basis I can ever picture. But he, he helped launch this, com- this community group and this community organization called Global Faith Network. And, and they're resourcing pastors and, and these ex-gang members are planning churches and seeing hundreds of people baptized in Guatemala City and, and starting food programs and produce distribution, all of these things. And, and so we're exploring what does it mean for us to go? What does it mean for us to be a part of that relationship in 2022? <laughs> I'm trying to remember what year we're in, 2022. And, and so we're exploring that and how we can partner to meet physical needs with our resource, but also have a way of God changing us and, and reorienting our lives. I've shared this with some of you. I think it'd be, it's a dream of mine to see that, that our church would go cross-culturally 12 times a year, that every single month we'd be on the stage praying for, God, as you send this team out to XYZ, God, as you send this team, not because we're saviors or that we have the, the, the kind of corner market on Christianity, but because God does something in us when we partner with someone outside of our culture to meet a physical need. And like I said, we're doing that with hand to hand. Last year was a very challenging year to figure out how do you get into schools and, and partner with them. And so uh, Charlie and our team, who, who's just playing bass today, kind of runs point on that ministry. And we just got really, really creative. And so we literally kind of in some weird social distance way, like packed bags, loaded cars, stood away from each other, and then hand-delivered them all to the families at Oreo Park. And, and some of the stories and the smiles and, and the thank yous from that day were powerful. Some of you were a part of that. And as we talk about emotional, I mean, I'm going to be straight up honest with you. The way that you actually help meet needs and you have your emotional needs met is when you're in relationship with other people. Some of you are like, that's not the answer I wanted. Sorry, that's the answer that scripture gives us. There's actually life and transformation when we're in community and we get tricked into thinking because we grew up in Christian environments maybe that we can do the Christian life alone and that's a lie. It's a total lie because we will self-deceive. We will isolate. When things get hard, we will withdraw. I bet there's people here that, that, that you've had seasons, and I know I've had seasons where like, should I go to church because the week was like this? Which is the actual opposite of what Jesus describes as the church community. And so I want to encourage you even today to, to just join a group, to get involved, because that's how not only you get needs met, but you are allowed to partner with other people. Some of us need to join a group, not because we're, our life's falling apart, but because there's someone who may be in that circle whose life is. And we need to be a part of, meet, of helping meet that need and, and setting people free. Third category, and then I'm done, is the spiritual. Be, because for me, 
Now, obviously, as a pastor, I've got my radar up all the time. Like every one of you, every conversation is a sermon illustration. I'm just letting you know that. Like if we're out, I'm going to think about something. I'm going to tailor something like that's how God speaks to me is just through kind of ordinary situations. Let me tell you the best way, the easiest way that so few of us actually practice to get people's spiritual needs and to set people free spiritually is by inviting them to church. Because what that does is not that being in this room saves anybody. I disagree with that. But what it does is put people in environments where they start to say, maybe this Jesus thing is for real. Maybe my marriage can be healed. Maybe my kids are not going off the deep end. Maybe I need some perspective in that. Maybe there is an opportunity for me, regardless of hurts or past weird experiences with church, to come into a community of people who really love Jesus and are seeking out the very best for our community. Maybe that's part of it. I'm bad at inviting people to church because I don't like being rejected. And I've shared with you, I've invited multiple people who, because they know I'm the pastor, is like, uh, I don't really think I want to go, which I don't know if that's an indictment on me or you. Probably on me. But, but, but to me, it's like, I, but I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep trying to get better at that because I know on the other side of the invitation are people like you and people hopefully like our family and, and what this community and how God could meet needs in that way. The second way we do that is through serving. And so many of you are committed in that way. I just want to say thank you for serving. These last 18 months have been hard and weird. And so many of you said, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to keep opening doors, making coffee, serving kids, serving on the worship team. We could not do it without you. But maybe today is a way to step into that relationship for the first time. Because here's what I get tempted to say in all this conversation. I, I sit down, and if I think about it long enough, I say, there's so many needs, though. How am I supposed to meet every single need? How do you sustain this work for the long haul? And the answer from Jesus is quite counterintuitive. It's actually humility. Humility is the way that you and I can be a part of seeing people set free every single day, week, month, year for a lifetime of following Jesus. Because here's what I know. There's sometimes I, I look at these needs and I stack them up against my own resource, my own life, and I'm reminded of my own Jesus story. There was a point in time I needed to be set free too. Because if you're honest long enough, you'd know that all of us before meeting Christ, all of us in some ways have been tormented by a spirit, enslaved to something. And Jesus' invitation to us in that moment and even to us as a church right now is say, do you want to see people set free? Who does God want to set free through you? As we close, I want to read this, this verse. It's really a section uh, Isaiah 61. Jesus' first sermon is Isaiah 61. He gets up, he reads this scroll, and then he sits down. It's like Jesus' first mic drop moment. If you're in the synagogue, he gets up and reads a passage that all of these rabbis, all of these Pharisees would have known. It would have been so familiar that they probably wouldn't even think it's worth preaching on anymore. It's like John 3.16. Like they knew it really, really well, even if they weren't really following it. Isaiah 61, Jesus gets up and says, this is why I have come. And he reads from the scroll. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness 
for the prisoners. You ask, what is my calling as a disciple of Jesus? What am I put on this earth to do? Isaiah 61.1. The same message and invitation that Jesus was given as, as God's son, he is giving now to his followers to say, would you take up this mantle? Would you take up this mission too? to serve people and to be a part of seeing zero needs among us. If you're wondering, okay, how do I take the next step? How do I move on from here? To me, it's, it's really simple. Some of you are not gonna like this answer. Some of you may leave early and not do it, and that's okay. But it's to simply sign up. Sign up to serve. Sign up for a group. Be a part of that. Uh, we actually wanna close by praying specifically over some of these team leaders. Because to me, whether it's guests or worship or cleaning or all these different ways, not only are you helping kind of meet the everyday needs of this community, but you're also enabling us to, to continue reaching people who are far from God, who don't have that freedom quite yet. And so you see those teams. And uh, because I already embarrassed the first group, I'm not going to make all these team leaders stand up and wave their hands and dance around for you. But I can get you in contact if you know. And right as you leave this service, there's a table with, with group signups and serving team signups. I'm going to encourage you to go back there and do it. But what I want to do is pray over us and ask that God would keep this work stirring as we close. So Jesus, we thank you for just your freedom. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for allowing us to encounter the powerful, not only good news of, of Jesus in, in kind of word, but also encountering it personally. God, I, selfishly, I just thank you for setting me free. Thank you for giving me a different kind of life. Thank you for reorienting my heart and, and what I love. And God, I pray that for this community. I think about how many people outside of these walls, maybe walking in a family fair right now, do not have that life-giving, abiding relationship with you that just creates in us the environment to, to really know freedom and joy and peace and grace and justice and truth. So that's what I pray, God. Would you just allow us to be those kind of people? We don't want to become a holy club insulated from the world and its needs. We want to be aware, our radars up of how we can meet needs, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. We love you and thank you for this work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, as we close, would you stand? We're going to sing a song to send us out.